Well, this morning we're going to go ahead and continue in the book of Colossians. And we're starting in chapter 2 this morning. And uh, just as a quick quick recap, um, last week we, we got to see how Paul was ministering and saying that Christ has the preeminence of everything, not only in our lives, but really in this world. Christ is preeminent, which as we learned was basically means the most eminent, the most distinguished, the most important to everyone and everything. And we also talked about what Paul's ministry to the church was, right? He said, Paul said that I am making up what is lacking in Christ's affliction, which I, I believe is, is all of our, our ministry to the church. And what is lacking in Christ's affliction? Well, it's not salvation. It's not being made whole. The only thing Jesus didn't do when he went to the cross is he didn't preach the gospel. That was left to us, amen? And that's what Paul was doing, and that's what's left to us to do, is to minister the gospel. And then today, Paul's going to continue on with that as we ended a little bit last week, and he's continuing on this week, is how he, he struggles for the saints, particularly the, the saints, the Colossians, and those are the, the saints in, in Laodicea. And he's going to encourage the saints. He's going to say, you know what? You've been changed. You've been made brand new. You need to walk that out in your life. There needs to be evidence of that. You need to, to do those things and walk the walk and talk the talk. Amen? And then he's also going to basically warn us about being misled by empty philosophies and deceitful philosophies. And finally, he's going to start dealing with basically legalism. You know, this idea that you can only eat certain things, you can only, you can only touch certain things, you have to celebrate certain days, or you can't celebrate certain days, or all these different things. And he's going to deal with that today. So, with no further ado, let's go ahead and get started. Colossians 2, 1-3 through 3 says, For I want, to, want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This word here, struggle, is actually the Greek word agon. And I know that because I Googled it. Anytime you see a Greek word, I just Google it to see how to pronounce it, because otherwise... I can't pronounce Greece. I, I, Greece, Greek, Greek, I read it, get all messed up. Anyway, but that's the word there says, I want you to know how great a struggle, the, 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 word, the Greek word is agon, and, and, and that's where we get the word today, agony. And what Paul is saying is that I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, how much I, I, I hurt for you, how much I care for you, how much I, I'm in agony for you. And he says, for those at Laodicea and for the, the Colossians, and he says, whom I have not seen face to face. We learned, what did we learn a couple weeks ago is that Paul had never been to these churches. All his other letters were to churches that he had planted, but Paul had never been to the church at Colossae. He had never been to the church at Laodicea, and he's sending these letters to them right now. And he says, I want you to know how great of a struggle that I have for you. And what he's saying is, I want you to know that what I have for you is more than just a, a passing prayer. It's more than just, a, oh, I heard about you. I, I quickly said thanks to God for you, and I never thought about you again. He said, I want you to know that I have a passion for you, that I care about you, that you guys are important to me. And I can relate to this a little bit. Actually, me and Hugo were having breakfast yesterday, and we were talking about, hey, you guys ever had somebody who just want to shake the Jesus into them? I mean, you're like, come on. I mean, you just, you, you just don't understand why they're not getting it, and how can you reach them? And you're praying, God, how can I, how can I get through to them? How can I minister to them? And, and, and it hurts your heart for them. 
and you're in agony because you just, there are some people, I, I wish I could shake Jesus into people. Do you ever wish I walk up, lay hands on them with, with uh, great force and repeatedly until Jesus gets into them? See, the thing is, is, is Paul is saying that I have a real struggle for you guys. I, I care about you guys. And I think that many of us have experienced that in our life, but the difference is, is Paul's experiencing this for people he's never met. He doesn't even know any of their names, yet he still has that passion. That's the kind of passion that I want to have. That's what, when I pray, God, give me your heart for this city, that's what I'm praying because I want it to be such a burden inside of me that I can't do anything else but go out there and tell people about him. And there's a real struggle for these people to receive, and there's a real hurt when they don't. Some of you guys know if you have family members, it hurts when they don't receive. Because you know what they're missing out of. You know what the end result ultimately is if they don't receive. Or what about people that are being taken advantage of by other people, taken advantage of by addictions? We hurt for these people. That's what Paul's Paul's done with these people. He's finding out that people are trying to come in and usurp Jesus' authority in their their community, and and he's hurting for these for for these people because people are trying to steal them away. He's trying to we're gonna find out later he uses the word take them captive. And this is why why Paul was preaching. This is why he struggled. It says that I do this because I want your hearts to be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul struggled. Paul preached for this reason. One, they'd be encouraged. Two, that they'd be knit together in love and that they would have a full assurance of Christ. And they would have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ. You see... Encouragement is so important in this world. And you guys, you guys know that if you've uh, uh, lived in this world. There's so many people walking around with, with no hope. They have an emptiness inside of them, and they, they need to be encouraged. They get up in the morning, and they don't know why they even have to get up. Have you, have you ever met somebody that's that broken, that that's hurting? They have no hope at all. They need encouragement. And the only thing that can fix that, the only thing that can repair that in them is Jesus Christ inside of them. They can find but the, the, the scripture refers to it as passing pleasures, temporary fixes, whether it be in drugs, women, alcohol, whatever, a job they like, a friend, but it's all temporary. The only thing that will fill that hole, the only thing that will make them whole is Jesus Christ. And then he says that we want them to be knit together in love. Did you guys know that the church is a family? The church is a family. And it's not just something quaint to say. That means that, that when you're in a family, that means you can't just up and walk away. That means that sometimes we struggle together. We don't give up on people in our family. We keep pushing through. Sometimes even when it's really hard. You don't give up on them. You stick with them. And that's what being knit together in love is. It's hard to pull something together that's knit together. Pull it apart. And in love, that's the way the body of Christ is. He says, I want them to have that, to be knit together in love. And he says for the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. There is hope in the gospel. And to have an understanding, to have that full assurance. And with the revelation of the gospel, not just, I mean, there's a lot of people that know about the gospel, but they don't have a revelation of the gospel. You guys know what the difference is, right? There's an intellectual understanding. There's something when, when God gets a hold of your heart and you actually have a revelation of what's going on. And in that, there's an assurance you know, some people have asked, can you, can you know that you're saved? Absolutely, you can know that you're saved. Because you can put your trust in the one who gave everything for you to be whole. And you can know it's not a, I hope so. 
When you put your trust in the Lord, you're not thinking probably. You're not thinking maybe. Maybe if I'm good enough. But when you put your trust in the Lord, there's an assurance there. And this, this assurance, this hope is not like today's hope. Like, like when you guys are hope, I hope he doesn't preach too long today. It's not like that. The hope in the gospel is a, is a solid thing. It's a, when you hope in something in the gospel, when the, when the, 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 the Bible refers to hope, it, it's a done deal. It's not a, a maybe wishy-washy thing. It's a done deal. So when we hope in Christ, it's a done deal. We have assurance, amen? And that's what Paul wants them to have. And that's what should be our hearts for everybody in this city to have. Amen? And in Colossians 2.4, it says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. See, this was a real problem for the church in Colossae. Is that the, the, they were dealing with, with directions coming from, from, from all angles. They had myst, uh, oriental mysticism coming in. They had, uh, some people were dealing with, with Jewish legalism. They're dealing with, with uh, the, the Gnostics of the time, the Gnostic philosophies. They're dealing with, with Greek uh, philosophies of the time. I mean, they, they got stuff coming at them from every which angle. They're all competing to say, no, we're the right one. We're the way. Kind of looks like today's world, right? I mean, we have it coming in in every direction. They were under attack by the enemy. And Paul wanted to make it clear the enemy is a liar. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. See, this idea of delusion here, we know it's a lie because that's the whole point of deluding. It's to mislead. It's to deceive. It's a lie. And the truth is, is the devil is a liar. Amen? And John 8.44 it says, When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And we all know what the purpose of the enemy is, right? John 10.10, the thief comes only to kill, to steal, and destroy. That's what the enemy's trying to do. He's trying to destroy the church there in Colossae. The enemy's trying to do that today in our city. He's trying to destroy the church in our city, in our country, in our world. The enemy wants to deceive you. And he'll do it with the preaching of ungodly men. And this isn't the only time that this is warned against. Actually, you'll see this many times throughout the Scripture. Romans 16, 18 says, For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. 2 Peter 2, 1-3 says, But false prophets are also among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will, be secretly, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way will be blasphemed. And their greed, they will exploit you with false words. And there's some interesting parts in this. As I read this, I look at some things, and when we say it's, it's no one may delude you, so we know it's a lie, right? But the next thing he says, with plausible arguments. Now that's interesting to me. And the reason being is that we know they're lies because they're there to delude you, to deceive you. But the arguments make sense. They're plausible. People are coming at you and, and they can lay it down. I mean, they got their PowerPoint slides. They got a 10, point, 10 points or, or 10 steps to, to be right with God or be one with the earth or 10, 10 steps to the American dream. I mean, you know people are preaching the American dream today. What he's saying is... is, is I get it. They sound good. It makes sense. 
they're, they're, they're saying plausible things. And if you don't know the Word, if you're not solid in your foundation, matter of fact, if we go back to Romans 16, 18, it says that by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the what? The naive. By those who aren't solid or firm in, the found, in their foundation of Scripture. And if we're not firm, if we're not solid in our foundation, it's very easy to be deceived because this stuff makes sense. If you sit down and listen to it out of context, you'd be like, hey, that makes sense. And nothing has changed from then to today. Stuff just sometimes makes sense. Some philosophies and religions sound good. Matter of fact, there's religions out there right now that are so close to Christianity, it's so easy to be deceived. They even use the same names. They just don't refer to the same people. And that's why it's so easy to be attracted to it because it makes sense. The warning to them is still sound to us today. And we would do well to heed it. We would do well to, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding. Remember what he's here? We want to have the riches of full assurance and understanding because if we have a foundation in the Word and the Scripture, we can easily pick out that which is a lie. But if we don't, I mean, these arguments make sense. And we have to be careful. Amen? Then in Colossians 2.5, he says, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. He says, For though I am absent in body, I am with you in spirit. Anybody ever heard that expression before? I mean, that's not some super spiritual metaphysical thing that only apostles can do. I mean, it's not like in Star Wars where Obi-Wan Kenobi showed up as a little hologram or something. What he's saying, it's not a, met, a mystical or metaphysical thing. What he's saying is, is that my heart is with you. I care about you. So that may be absent in the body, but that doesn't change how much I care, how passionate I am. It doesn't change how much that I am praying for you. It's an indication of his love or his intimacy with them and for them. And it's what drove Paul to struggle for them, to contend with them. Because he, he, Paul had Christ's heart for people. I mean, when I read some of the stuff he wrote, when, he's, when he said when he was talking about his Jewish brethren, he said, I would even give up my own salvation that they could be brought in. That's a man that cares about people. And I have to be honest, I would like to have that passion, but I don't think I could say that. Because he's willing to, to give up everything for eternity for his brethren. He loved people. He cared about them. He contended for them. He agonized over them. And that's what he wanted these guys to know, that I am with you, even though I'm not. And he says that I rejoice to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. He was rejoicing that they were, they were holding out. There was a real, there was a real uh, uh, enemy out there. There was a real uh, a point of contention. But we get the idea here that they were, they were standing strong. And he says, I'm rejoicing in your good order. You're keeping, keeping your head on your shoulders and your firmness of your faith. And he rejoiced when they did well. And, and knowing Paul from what I read in the Scriptures, I can tell you that he would, have, he would have been in pain if they were in pain as well. Because he cared about them. The truth is, as believers, we should all rejoice when one person rejoices or we all suffer together, right? Because we're one body. But Paul genuinely cared about him. He said, you know what? I am with you. Then in Colossians 2, 6-7, he says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, 
rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. So it's basically, since you have received Him, walk in Him. Be careful to walk in Him. I like the way the Amplified Bible puts it. And it says in Colossians 2.6, it says, You have therefore received Christ, even Jesus the Lord, so walk, and in parentheses, regulate your lives and conduct yourselves in union and in conformity with Him. That means when we walk in Him, that we walk in union with Him, but in conformity with Him. That means we should walk like Jesus walked. When you walk down the street, they should go, was that Jesus? I think I just saw Jesus. Because you should look like Him. You should walk like Him. You should talk like Him. You should think like Him. You have the mind of Christ. He says, if, if you've received Him, walk in Him. And that's one of the, the biggest things that Paul deals with in, in many Scriptures is he's like, look, this is how you used to be. It's who you were. But you have to understand it's who you were. It's not who you are. Start acting like, start walking like who you are now. When you got saved, there was a miracle that took place inside you. But the old man was removed completely and replaced by the Spirit of God. You are brand new. You are a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 In Christ, you were a new creation. That was a miracle that took place. So start walking what has happened inside of you. Be who you are. Amen? And it's not the only time he's preached this. In Ephesians 4, 20-24, it says, But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So that if you've received God, put on the new self. When we looked at Ephesians, we know that he was referring to as, as like garments. You know, take off the old dirty garments and put on Christ as like a brand new shiny white cloak and walk in Him. Dress the part. The other thing I want to say is, is, is how do we do this? Because this is tough. Some people, when they get saved, it's like a light bulb goes off and, and everything in their life changes. Some people, it's not like that. For me, it wasn't like that. There was some, some walking out of faith that had to happen before things began to manifest in my life. So how do we do it? We do it by faith. Just as you received Him, we received Christ by faith, and we walk it out by faith as well, trusting that He's working inside of us. The reality is, is that you can't do it on your own. I was, I was just beginning to, to tell Ron this morning when, when I first got saved, the reality was is that I remember a point I turned on a TV show and it just didn't fit anymore. I just didn't relate. I'm like, why am I? Wa-? I didn't even want to watch it anymore. Although my whole life, I knew there were these bad things that I didn't want to do, but I couldn't help it. I did it anyway. I knew I didn't want to. Then I feel guilty and terrible afterwards. But what happened was when I got saved, something changed inside of me. And it wasn't me trying to change myself, but God had changed me. And I began to walk out what had happened inside of me. And that's an amazing thing. If we want to see people to change, we've got to get them, Jesus inside of them and start teaching them the Word. That's why we're supposed to make disciples and not just converts. Because when they're converts, they're naive and they can be easily persuaded by other things or easily slip back. But when they get the Word inside of them, they begin to learn who they are in Christ. Their faith grows and builds and they begin to walk out what Jesus has already done inside of them. Amen? And then he says that we need to be rooted in Him. See, Paul's using all kinds of metaphors this morning. He said you need to be rooted in Him. And what he's referring to is like a, a large tree. 
You know, like we'd see in the States, a large oak. Anybody ever live back east where we actually have real trees? It's hard for us to understand here because we have big bushes. But when I lived in Missouri, or when my dad lived in North Carolina, he had a big tree in his front yard. And first we had to cut the tree down, so we cut it down, but the roots were still in the ground. And there was this big stump. And matter of fact, that particular tree, it was such a large tree, we actually couldn't get it out of the ground. We had to, we had to put some sort of chemicals on it to kill the roots so we could actually rip it out of the ground because it was so firm with its roots in the ground that it couldn't be moved, it couldn't be shaken. And that's what he's saying. Be rooted in Christ. Have your anchor in Him. Have your foundation in Him. And when you have solid roots in Christ, a foundation, an anchor in Him, you can't be rooted. You can't be pushed over. Many a trucks have lost to big trees. And if you're rooted in Him, the enemy is going to lose coming up against you. Amen? Amen. He says, and he's built up in Him. The next, the next one he uses is being built up. It's this idea of building a structure and being built up. You guys remember when they had all the, the floods back east and they began to build up these levees and these dams and these bridges? And how did they do that? They kept adding more and more to it and, and strengthening these things and making them more solid so they would withstand the force any force that came against them. The same is true with us. When you build a building and if you want to build it up strong, they use stronger materials and they use tougher stuff so it can be shaken or knocked over. And the truth is, is that that's what is up here. Be built up in Him. Be strengthened in Him. Be increased in Him. And then he says, established in the faith. Other translations say be strengthened or established not in, not in just the faith, but in your faith. Be established in your faith. And what that means is that's not a wishy-washy faith. A wishy-washy faith isn't going to do you any good. Matter of fact, Scripture makes it clear that if you have that kind of faith, don't expect anything from God. But instead, trust in Him fully. He says, just as you were taught. This is what they were taught, right? This is what we teach in this church. It's what every, every life-giving church, they teach this stuff, that your faith to be strong in Him. And that's what Paul taught. And then finally it says, abounding in thanksgiving. And I think he added this because they were going through some tough stuff. Their people were coming against them. People were persecuting them. They were trying to talk him into different things. We're going to find out in a few minutes they were trying to disqualify them. And he says, you know what? Times are tough, but even still give thanks to God. People are trying to make you feel disqualified, not good enough. You know what? Give thanks to God. People are, are, are doing these terrible things. Give thanks to God. And we don't, do, we don't give thanks to God for these things. How many of those are different? We don't give God thanks for these things, but in these things, in spite of these things. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It's in all circumstances we give thanks. And then in Colossians 2.8, he goes on to say, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So see that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. The New Living Translation says this, Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense. I like how they put that. It's just nonsense, some of the stuff that we hear. See, the reality is, is that Christ came to free us. It would be foolish 
to let ourselves be taken captive again. Particularly by the stuff that goes on in this world. This is why Paul wanted them established or strong in their faith. So they wouldn't be taken captive. Because if you're not strong, if you're not established, it's very easy to be taken captive. And the idea that they were using here is that, is that taken captive literally meant that people were coming in with their different philosophies and religions and capturing the minds of people and picking them up and carrying them away from the church. They were taking them captive. That's the imagery that's being used here. And Paul says, no, stay strong in your faith so that you're not taken captive and carried away. Just because he's a philosophy, human thoughts are empty deceits. We've got to be careful for watching out for downright lies. You see, the Colossians were surrounded, like I said earlier, by Greek and Oriental and, and Gnostic theologies and Jewish legalism and, and probably much like today, people were doing the pick-your-own-religion stuff. And everybody was coming against them. And, and he's saying, you know what? Be rooted, be grounded. Don't be taken captive by this stuff. You know, when I think about the kind of stuff that goes on in today's world, the two big ones that I see uh, that, I w- that I would almost think of as religions coming at us today is one is, is, is Darwinism. Because if you're not careful, if you, if you look at that on paper, that can make sense. That can be plausible. When, you're, when you begin to, to, to look at that stuff. And the reality is, is that it takes just as much faith, particularly in the sciences that deal with creationism and stuff that happened billions of years ago. It takes just as much faith, if not more faith, to believe in that stuff than to believe in, in, in a God who created the universe. And they spit it out like it's scientific fact when there's no way they can verify that stuff. How many of you were alive billions of years ago when they claimed this stuff happened? Not any of us. I think it takes just as much faith to believe in that stuff. But they come at us with plausible arguments, right? And they try to make it make sense. And it's very easy to be deceived by that stuff. Or what about the thing that is preached more today than anything else in the world? Money. We see, I mean, you, can, you, can, you don't have to get too far down the street. You're going to see a billboard talking about all you've got to do is, is have money and buy this thing and you're going to be happy. You're going to be whole. Well, you're not feeling, buy a boat. That'll fix everything. (laughs) To be complete, spend all kinds of money. You don't have the money? No problem. Charge it. The truth is, is that none of these things can make you complete. Because they're all not according to Christ. The only things that will make you complete are those according to Christ. Jesus Christ will make you whole. Now, I'm not opposed to having a boat. But it doesn't make me whole. I'll take Jesus and a boat. In Colossians 2, 9-10 it says, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule, and authority. So why do we regard all of these other philosophies and teaching as empty? Because they're in contrast to Jesus Christ. It's because for in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And all these things are in contrast to Christ. But if Jesus Christ was God in the flesh, and He was, then I think we can take His word over the word of all these other different things that are coming out of us. Jesus left no other option to who He was. He was either God or He was crazy. And you've got to make a choice. And if he was God, 
then what he says should have the ultimate weight and authority, the ultimate truth in your life. Amen? And all these other things are the, the words and traditions and thoughts of man. How can they compare with the thoughts of God? The truth of God. And then he goes on to say, for you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. You know, we've been filled in Jesus Christ. The image here is that we've been topped off. The holes have been repaired. The cracks have been repaired. And made and not just repaired, but made brand new. But you're completely full. If you're full in Jesus, how is there room for anything else? Amen? There is no room for anything else. The reality is, is that if we want to let something in, we've got to take something out because we're already filled in Him. Amen? And in Colossians 2, 11 through 12 it says, In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. For the Jews, circumcision was a sign of the covenant that God had made with Him. That's in Genesis 17. You can read about that. I think it starts in chapter 9. But it was something that, that, the, that the Jewish people did that It was done by man's hands. And it was basically a physical operation that had spiritual significance. But when you believe on Jesus, there's no longer that sign of the covenant. Instead, we have a a circumcision of the heart. We've been made with a circumcision made without hands. Instead, it's Christ working inside of us. Man didn't do it, but God did. When, when, when man circumcises, they remove the foreskin. But when God circumcises our heart, He removes the, the entire body of flesh from us. And before it was a physical operation with spiritual significance, but now it's a spiritual operation with both spiritual and physical significance. Because spiritually we've been remade. The old man has been cut loose. He's been done with. He's gone. He's no longer a part of you. He has no hold on you, no control. You are completely free from who you used to be when you rub this world. But it has a physical effect because when you are changed fundamentally on the inside, it should affect what you look like on the outside. Amen? Physical circumcision never had any effect on sin, but spiritual circumcision allows us to conquer sin. Amen? Then he goes on to say that we have been buried with Him in baptism. That's why when we do baptisms here, we do Full submersion baptism. Because it's the picture of us being buried with Christ. And we're completely put underneath the water, symbolizing our being buried with Christ. And when we'll we be pulled out of the water, it spiritualizes us being raised anew with Him. And it says that we've been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith. This is all done by faith. We don't got to throw you in the ground. We don't got to wait three days and open the tomb and see how you're doing. But instead, we do it by faith in baptism. Truthfully, baptism is just a good old-fashioned funeral. And then you're raised in newness of life with Him through the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that removes 
your old body of flesh. It's the same power that makes you brand new. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that cleanses you of all your sins. It's the same power that frees you from the bondage of sin and death. The same power that removed the confines and prison of our old life gives us a new one raised with Him. Amen? And in Colossians 2, 13-15, it says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by the canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. And He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, by triumphing over them in Him. One thing I want to point out here is that that's a past tense word. It says, And you who were dead and your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your, of your flesh. That's something that we have to, to make really clear in our minds. We need a revelation of that is, is that that's who we were. It's not who we are now. This was before when we were, we were stuck walking that old life, before we had the uncircumcision of our flesh, when the old man was still around, rearing his ugly head, when he had control of our life. But since then, we've been made alive together with Jesus Christ, being made brand new. And He has forgiven us of all of our trespasses, all of those dead works, all of those awful things that you did. But pastor, you don't know how bad some of the things that I did were. Anybody ever heard, uh, you know what, I just got to get myself right with God before I come to church. Or he, got, he can never forgive me for this. I mean, sure, the regular people that have done regular sin, He can forgive them, forgive them for that, but He doesn't know the things that I've done. The truth is that He has forgiveness for all of those trespasses, no matter how bad that they were. He says, and He cancels the record of debt that stood against us with, our, with His legal demands. You see, the truth is, is those trespasses, those records of debt, they did have legal demands. There was a price that had to be paid. Romans three or 6.23, it says the wages of sin is death, right? That had to be paid. And God is a just God. He couldn't just turn His back on and say, you know what, we're just going to wipe the slate clean. But instead, He set it aside by nailing it to the cross. The price was paid in Jesus. The debt that was owed was paid in Jesus. But not only that, not only did He nail our sins to the cross, but he nailed the law to the cross as well. In Matthew 5.17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's the thing I love about what God did in Jesus, because he didn't compromise on who he was, his integrity or his holiness. But instead, he paid the price in his son for us. That we could be forgiven, but the requirements of the law, the penalty that had to be paid was still paid. And in doing so, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Other translations refer to this as as powers and principalities. Basically, he's talking about the devil and his his, his minions. (laughs) He disarmed Satan. He took away his sting. He took away his power. In 1 Corinthians 15.55, it says, it's quoting the Old Testament, it's, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? He took away the devil's power completely. He has none in your life anymore. Amen? But not only did he disarm him, he humiliated him. I mean, we're not just talking like God didn't just squeak by in victory. He put a wall upon him. 
He kicked him up and down the court and humiliated him. There's everything that the devil meant to have victory. God turned around and said, not only do you not get to win, but the very thing that you sent to destroy my son, to destroy my salvation, destroy the Messiah, I'm going to use that very thing to complete the victory. He did that with the cross, and we share in that victory with him. Amen? And then in Colossians 2, 16-18, it says, Therefore, no, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. One of the things that they were struggling with in, in Colossae and, and Laodicea was that there were a lot of Jewish legalists that were trying to push on them the Jewish law. Now, there were a lot of Jewish Christians they were Jewish, they got saved, and they still did the same things they did. There's nothing wrong with that. As long as they weren't abiding by the law for salvation, if they put their trust in Christ, it didn't matter if they didn't eat pork or they did. It didn't matter if they, they celebrated a holiday or they didn't. But what was strange here was that the people in Colossae and Laodicea, they were, they were Gentiles. They were never Jewish. So it seems strange that they would want to come under Jewish law or that anybody would expect them to come under Jewish law because the law wasn't given to them, it was given to Israel. Amen? And the truth is that anybody who asks someone to uphold or come underneath the law is basically saying that Jesus wasn't enough. Because what's the expression? Jesus plus nothing is everything, but Jesus plus anything is nothing. So therefore, since we are alive in Him, since we are, have been forgiven because of Him, since we are victorious through Him, don't let someone pass judgment on you because of what you eat or drink. In Matthew 15.11 it says, It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Romans 14.2-4 says, One person believes he may eat anything while the, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. If you want to eat, eat. If you don't want to eat, don't eat. God still loves you. And there's no reason for us to pass judgment on anybody else for those things. He says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. Basically, if God's got an issue with it, they're going to have to deal with God. It's not for us to decide. 1 Corinthians 8.8 says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it, and no better off if we do. So what we're getting at here is, is it doesn't matter which way you go. If the, if the Jewish Christians wanted to uphold the traditions that they had, as long as their faith was in Christ, it didn't matter. But they shouldn't expect or, or, or hold somebody else accountable to something that wasn't meant for them. It says, also, not, not only food and drink, but basically don't let them worry about the holidays that you practice. Romans 14, 5-6 says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. And the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. He says, hey, don't let people pass judgment on you. If you want to do it, honor God and you're doing. If you don't want to do it, honor God and you're not doing. It's one of the things that, that I've had to, to be wary of. Uh, one of the things that I, I get worried about when we do our, our Halloween, our fall festival. We do it right on Halloween. And we hand out candy. And we let people come up to the house. And we, and we minister to them. We invite them to church. But the thing is, many people go, oh no, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a heathen holiday. That's a witchcraft holiday. You can't celebrate that. You can't do anything on that. 
And I'm like, I'm celebrating it for the Lord. And the truth is, it's about the only time of the year that people come knocking on my door. And I get to tell them about Jesus. The truth is, no matter how you look at it, legalism is bondage. What you can touch, what you can't, it's bondage. And, and the Scripture says, in Acts 15.10 says, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Galatians 5.1, the first one was Peter, this is Paul. He says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The truth is, it says that these are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The law and all that it entailed was just a shadow of Jesus. But He is the substance of all that the law pointed to. In Hebrews 10.1, it says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities. The truth is, what the law tried to accomplish was fully accomplished in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Colossians 2.18-19, it says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. First he dealt with legalism, now he's dealing with asceticism, which is basically depriving yourself for religious reasons. He's saying, hey, you know, and there's, there's a lot of people you've seen go that, like, you know, they, they feel like they've got to be poor in order to be spiritual. They have to give everything up in order to be spiritual. They have to do, deprive themselves in order to be spiritual. And here, the next one he says, are, are talking about people that were the worship of angels. Basically, the peril that, that, that Paul was doing was this idea of mysticism, this idea that there's a belief that people could have an immediate experience with the spiritual word completely apart from the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And the false teachers in Colossae were having these, these visions and they made contact with angels, or, or what they thought were angels at least. And in bypassing the, the Spirit of God and the Word of God, they basically were opening themselves up to all kinds of demonic activity. Because Satan knows how to give a counterfeit experience. Amen? 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen through 15 says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. But their end will correspond to their deeds. The enemy can make things look just as good as anything else. And we can get sucked in if we stray away from the word and truth of God. He says, they're not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourishes and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If we're not founded in Jesus, if he is not our anchor, if he's not our strength, if he's not our focus, it's easy to get wrapped up in those things. But when we hold fast to the head, then the whole body, that's all of us, is nourished and we grow with a growth that is given by God. Amen? How many of you guys want to grow with a growth that has been given by God? Keep Jesus at your head. And then we'll end here in Colossians 2, 20-23. It says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teaching. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. 
See, if we've died to this world in Christ, and we are alive in Christ, why would we live as if we haven't? Why would we let these other things influence and take hold of our lives? And when we live like this, this whole do not handle, do not touch, celebrate this, don't celebrate that, it may have the appearance of spirituality. That's what he says right here. He says, these indeed have an appearance of wisdom. They look good on paper. If you're not careful, you're like, oh, that makes sense. He says, but Paul says, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You know, depriving yourself of anything, doing certain things, following certain traditions, is not going to remove the body of flesh from you. It's not going to make you whole. It's not going to make you clean. Only Jesus can do that. And even though it may have the appearance of wisdom, it may look good, nothing will be accomplished. There are many super spiritual men that have walked this earth. And from the outside looking in, they looked wise. They looked peaceful. They looked like they were doing the right thing. But the end result is the same if they don't have Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's be a people who are going to keep Jesus Christ at our head. Amen? Let's be a people that are going to keep Him the focus and the center. And like Paul said, let's be weary of things that are kind to come in from the outside and influence us and lead us astray. Amen?